Georgie Frost and welcome to The Pace Setters, the CIO and Hewlett-Packard Enterprise podcast series, which looks at how chief information officers get value from their data to stay ahead of the pack. In this episode, we're looking at the emergence of artificial intelligence and what that means for your IT infrastructure, your applications and your data, but ultimately how it can save your business time and money. Well, I've got two guests with me with very different takes on this. Uh, so if you'd just introduce yourself. Hi, hi Georgie. I'm Alison Davis. I'm the CIO at the Natural History Museum and I've been in post for about a month. Hi, my name's Matt Armstrong-Barnes. I'm Chief Technologist for Artificial Intelligence for Hewlett-Packard Enterprise in the United Kingdom and Ireland. Alison, just if you would, just go back a little bit about your beyond the one month, if that's all right. What's your background? Yeah, so I'm actually a research chemist by original training. So I've been around life sciences uh, for all my career, largely the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, but I had the fun of being the inaugural CIO for the Francis Crick Institute for five years up to 2018. Uh, so I've been around quite a lot of the, the scientific data, big data, particularly in recent years. So currently, can you just explain then then what you're doing and how you've seen through what you've just explained there, AI and data interact with both your current and your previous roles? So I think it's it's interesting what artificial intelligence in the science community is an interesting question because I would say that actually scientists are supplying the crucial intelligence in terms of the basic science and discovery. And it's quite interesting to to think about how AI can help that. I think where I have a take on it is that for me, science, a lot of it is about asking the right questions. And we tend to think of science as experimentation. And actually the experimentation part of science is more about proving or disproving the questions that scientists ask. So if AI and machine learning can help to experiment quicker, then that will give scientists more time to ask the big questions and to see whether their hypotheses are correct in the first place. So I think there is the potential, and it's still very much in its infancy, for AI to really speed up science if we enable people to ask more questions. Specifically, though, I'm worried now because you're saying asking the right questions. I need to make sure I ask the right questions. But uh, is, Do you see it making your job much easier? How specifically for you in what you do? And of course, the potential problems, which we'll get into in a minute, but the benefits that you see? I think with AI, it's actually difficult to see the, the immediate benefits compared to industry in science. Like I said, the scientists, I think, are the ones who supply the intelligence still. And I think they would debate whether artificial intelligence could really supplant the scientific endeavour in that context. I think machine learning has much more of a capability in terms of being able to advance science. So to give a, a specific tangible example... When I was at the Crick, uh, one of the things that the scientists were doing there, which was a really good combination of citizen science and machine learning, when you are looking at diagrams, microscopy, uh, and you're looking at nuclei, someone actually has to draw around the nucleus of a cell just to show where it is when you're looking at building up diagrams. And what was done with citizen science, and actually it can still be done, it's called Etch-a-Cell and it's on Zooniverse, is to get people to draw round cells in their spare time. I did it. Uh, it's like one of those drawing things that is terribly meditative. And to get them to do that, 
And to use that data set, obviously, once you've eliminated the outliers, where someone's decided to draw a moustache and a beard on the cell, for example, uh, to get that data set to be used as a training data set, then for machine learning. So the ultimate goal is actually the machine can draw around the cell, but you use the citizen science to provide the initial training data set. So once that's done, then you're not spending the time of trained scientists to do that work, and they can spend more time doing the, the value-added science. Is it fair to say, Alison, that I can sort of label you as slightly cynical, slightly reserved? Is that, is that about fair? Uh, yeah, I think I'm reserved about the, the benefits to science of AI. I think mm. there's a lot of benefits to medicine and to some of the other areas I've worked in in pharmaceuticals in terms of diagnostics, in terms of looking at the current coronavirus outbreak, for example, and analysis. But I think in terms of basic science and really trying to make the leaps where you try and understand the way the universe is working, I think it's hard to see how AI will have sufficient neurodiversity to be able to make those leaps. It's still working, I think, to a set of rules. However granular and however clever you make those rules, there's still an embedded set of rules in it. Well, I will then throw that over to you, Matt. Uh, do you share those reservations, perhaps? Yeah, I think where we are today, artificial intelligence is focused at very specific use cases. So the AI that we see in science fiction is really an AI that is capable of operating across multiple knowledge domains. And as Alison talked about, we're not there yet. We're not capable of running the same AI model against multiple use cases. And we see that in the AI that we interact with on a daily basis or those that are being implemented into industry. There is a natural evolutionary step, but we've kind of yet to take it. Mm. There is massive benefit that can be derived by finding those use cases and working out, as Alison talked about, the data that you've got as to whether or not you can train your AI to make and clarify the understanding of the data that you have and to find the critical value in it. So is that where you see the big opportunities for CIOs? Yeah, so if we if we start to think about it, the volume of data that we have is increasing at an exponential rate. And it's actually got to the point where it is physically impossible for human beings to process that data and work out where the value is. So we have to use a new set of tools. And a lot of that came from big data. And the traditional tools that came with big data are kind of running out of steam. We need to start thinking about new approaches that can start to look at this massive corpus of data that we have because it is a tsunami mm. and it's hitting organisations on a daily basis. So we have to process it near real time in order for it to have real value. Can you give me some practical examples? Yeah, sure. So just stopping with the medical theme, if we think about the number of MRI, X-ray and CT scans in April last year, I believe it was about 500,000 across the NHS. The number of radiologists that we have who are capable of processing that information is plateauing or in decline. So the availability of the technology to perform these type of scans is going up. It's dropping in price. We're seeing more scans coming out. But the number of skilled people who can look at it is plateauing or in decline. Where can we use AI? Well, actually, as Alison talked about, AI is not a tool for diagnosing. What can it do? 
prioritise. It can look through all of that information that you've got and work out which are the most likely cases of pneumonia or lung cancer or things along those lines. All of those existing images still need to be looked at by a skilled expert, but the AI can put them into the most appropriate order. Alison? Yeah, I think that's true. And I suppose I would distinguish between AI and machine learning, maybe. So I think that's one of the challenges in this space at the moment, is that we talk about AI, and that's probably why I'm cynical, because when I hear AI, I really want to think about the science fiction, the true intelligence that will add something new to it. Whereas I tend to think about what Matt's talking about more as machine learning and and machine processing. And that clearly is where we are seeing a benefit and a volume. We see it hugely in science, where you do start seeing some of the microscopy techniques, the gene sequencing techniques that are producing more and more data. And having the computer assistance to analyse that data is going to be increasingly vital. We have a question for both of you from Adrian Tucker, who is a Chief Information Officer working for the UK government. My question to Alison is, do you think that AI can be as ethical as the people that create it, or indeed the people that start the process? And the reason I ask that question is some processes are quite benign and AI can give a good insight into what the data is saying. But in other cases, AI can also be making decisions that could potentially affect people's lives. So can AI ever be as ethical as the people that create it, Alison? Thanks, Adrian. Um, I think actually it should be as ethical, but what it can't be is more ethical than the people who create it. So the problem with AI is I think that it is still created by humans and we've already seen that there are biases that get introduced into AI by the people who create it and by the types of people who create it. So, yes, absolutely, AI can end up biased. It could end up unethical. I'd prefer it not to, frankly. I don't think it can be inherently, or it shouldn't be inherently less ethical than those who create it, but I would say it absolutely can't be more ethical because their own biases will be introduced into it. I'm going to ask the same question to Matt in a second, but just want to, you said about the biases, just what would be the problem? I mean, I can see myself, but you lay it out. What are the issues with that? So, for example, if I would look at a photo and think something about that particular photograph, then I'm programming an AI. The chances are... So say I'm programming an AI to look at pictures of people coming through an airport and do something about them, show particular adverts. There's every chance that I may well introduce my own biases into how that AI views those photographs. Uh, so it's that type of thing. So in terms of it could be racial profiling, yeah. sexism, all sorts of issues. It could, it could be gender, it could yeah. be race, any of those um, unconscious biases. So it's very hard to eliminate your own unconscious biases. We all have them. And so the danger is that we introduce them into AI. And particularly, I think there's been some evidence of gender bias in AI already. I don't want to sound oversensitive about these things, but there has been some evidence that AI can be gender biased if it's programmed exclusively by men, for example. The other question, I suppose it's a segue on from what Adrian's asking, is if you're using AI, do you take out the potential for diversity? One of the things I personally value in Teams is the diverse input. 
And if you're using an AI that is programmed in one way, how do you get neurodiversity? Do you have to use two AIs? Well, there's a question, and you can go on to that in a second. But back to, uh, if you would, Matt, just answering um, Adrian's question, can AI be as ethical as the people that created it? And then we'll talk about Alison's question there. Is that in another one? Yeah, so we've talked about artificial intelligence. Mm. And really, if we peel back the onion of artificial intelligence, as a sub-discipline of that, we've got machine learning, which is machines that are capable of learning. They don't have to be explicitly programmed. Inside of that... And there are multiple ways that you can achieve that. If you peel back the onion again, you have something called an artificial neural network, which is probably the most popular way of achieving machine learning today. So what is an artificial neural network? It is a digital representation of the way the biological brain works. Which discipline actually cracked that? Mathematics. So let's bear in mind that an AI that we have today or a deep learning algorithm is a mathematical model. Mathematics is not bias. What is bias is the data that you put into that mathematical model. And when we think about bias, it relates to data when it relates to people. There are lots of implementations of AI that are inherently unbiased. So if we look at the operation, so something called AI ops, which is using artificial intelligence to run water plants, to run manufacturing plants, they are not biased. When we introduce people into the equation, it's about having the diversity across the data set that we push through our mathematical model. And that's the challenge. The other challenge that we have is something called explainability. In much the same way that we can't tell you how a human brain arrives at a decision, it is also challenging once you've taken all of your data and you've trained your mathematical model as to how to make a prediction, it is then quite difficult to look into the AI and work out how it arrived at that decision. So we end up with a couple of challenges. One is the data that we've got, does it have gaps in it? Does it have holes in it? Does it have inherent biases in it? And secondly, once we've pushed that through our algorithm, how do we make sure that we understand how the AI is making decisions? Well, we're outlining quite a few um, risks and challenges which CIOs should be thinking about, but have we got any tips and solutions for them? Yes, if, if I were to boil it down, I think I've probably, in terms of speaking to a number of CIOs, there's a load of CIOs and they've got this great big hammer and it says the word artificial intelligence on it and they're desperately looking for nails. Artificial intelligence is a tool. It needs to be in every organization's toolkit, but you need to choose the right tool for the right job. And a lot of that comes down to identification of the use cases you're trying to execute against. So the key challenges that I see when I talk to CIOs, firstly, artificial intelligence, an interesting science project. So it's created in the labs, it lives in the labs, and it'll very probably die in the labs. Why is that the case? AI needs to tackle real business problems. If it's not tackling real business problems, it's not going to add you value into your organisation. Other ones are inelastic infrastructure. So AI has a different requirement on your infrastructure than your traditional enterprise applications. So you need to make sure that you're providing the right kind of capabilities that are going to allow you to execute against your AI use cases. The other big ones I see are too much governance or too little governance. Too much governance, you're going to kill innovation anyway, outside of it being an AI project or not. Too little governance and you create interesting science projects. And probably the last one I see is build it and they will come. <laughs> they won't. Oh, you're shaking your head there, Alison. 
in agreement. So yes, <laughs> uh, apologies if the shake was looking like a disagreement because it, it wasn't. I, don't, I think build it and they will come is definitely a mistake. A lot of this is kind of project management 101 in the sense that I would say you want to find a, a use case where you can start small and you can actually play with something, preferably given what we were talking about earlier, that you find a use case which isn't overly complicated, ideally by not having people in it, so you don't have to worry about the bias. One of the opportunities that I think we have at the museum, we're currently looking at using at the sensors that we have in the museum and the kind of Internet of Things thinking to be able to play into our costs by looking at creating a digital twin of the museum with the sensors and then tracking how rooms are being used to see if we need to have lights on and how can we keep our electricity bill reduced. Now, in the first instance, we're looking at that as an IoT digital twin type of project, but I can see how very easily you could layer AI on top of that then to do the control to make those decisions. Now, that's the sort of thing I'd quite like to play with AI for, or machine learning, to be able to intervene in that. But that doesn't involve any people, any complicated bias, and it makes it straightforward. And it's something that we're already building and we could extend into something, and something very practical. The museum's a charity, it needs donations, it has a limited budget, so if we can keep the the costs down, that's a very practical outcome. I think the other thing is to think about AI is a team sport and it needs lots of people to play in the same team. So there are a couple of ways that you can approach an AI project. One is you can go and do it on your own. Perfectly valid approach, but that does mean that you need all of the capabilities that you need. Or the other one is you engage with a partner who's done it before. So they understand where the pitfalls are, where the challenges are. And one of the key attributes you need from a partner is that they've got an ecosystem. So any organisation that says they can do AI end-to-end just is not paying attention. It's such a fast-moving discipline with so many different use cases. You need to bring a consortium together who are all pulling in the right direction. If I give you an example, we're um, working with a large airport and they approached us and said, we've got a safety requirement, health and safety requirement. So we need to work out when a plane is coming in too quickly to dock. Mm. So they talked to us about IoT and sensors and radar and um, a whole bunch of complex infrastructure. We said, hang on a second, have you got a camera pointing at that? said, yeah, 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 we have. So well, actually, we've got one of our software partners and they've got an AI and all it does is look for objects and tell you how fast they're moving. So very simple solutions to actually complicated problems is probably the way to get started. But always start with an initial business problem and then work out which tool is the most effective to fix it. I'm wondering, listening to you, you spoke about neurodiversity and man-machine existing side by side. Is that it? Are we just thinking when we think of AI that it's just going to take over every role and actually, no, it may. there is going to be some sort of balance to be had there? Yeah, I firmly believe there's a balance. I like science fiction, uh, so I would. I think there is a potential brave new world. But it goes back to what Matt was saying earlier. We don't have the capacity as humans to deal with the data that is being thrown at us now. It's something that I have a particular bugbear about. I think we need to be teaching more data science in schools. I think we need to be equipping people to deal with data much better, the sort of statistical data that the news is throwing at us on a daily basis. But beyond that, 
there are quantities of data that we just cannot handle. And that's where we will have to use machines and we will have to be able to trust machines to give us the answer to those problems. So I think there is a coexistence. Uh, whether you go down the whole route that the machines take over and decide for their own reasons that we're parasites and do away with us, I, I, I don't believe. I think that there is a coexistence between man and machine. And there are things that we bring to that coexistence in terms of neurodiversity and other things that AI and machine learning bring to that coexistence. Yeah, and I think the other thing is AI is starting to take away the mundane. So mundane tasks that people don't necessarily want to do, and a lot of them do involve sifting through large volumes of data, is definitely a role that AI is starting to play and will continue to play. If we view things like driving so autonomous driving is making significant headway we've still got a long way to go before we get to fully autonomous is driving a mundane task that some people have to perform would they prefer to be spending their time elsewhere and where we see then is we end up with an ethical conversation mundane tasks could become recreational so there are those people who like to drive mm. and as a result they could drive but they would do it as a recreational activity and there are those people who would like to spend their time more effectively doing something else and they would, as Alison said, would trust the AI to take over that mundane task for them. So we have another question for you both from Tony Stranach, who is a chief technologist within HPE UK office and was also on episode two. My question is really around uh, how you advise organisations around the appropriate tool sets to use for different types of data. Uh, my question really comes from the fact that I've been speaking to a number of organisations recently who are looking to dive into artificial intelligence, machine learning kind of projects to data that is, is probably initially exploitable from just standard analytics, uh, business analytics. And I'd just like to get your view on, on how do you align the appropriate tools to the appropriate kind of data. Yeah, so if you look at artificial intelligence, there is an explosion of tools, of libraries, of frameworks, of programming languages. There's quite a lot of decisions you need to make because we've talked about AI in general. There are different implementations of AI. So some mathematical models are better at addressing some use cases than others. So you need to choose the right mathematical model. And in order to implement those mathematical models, there are lots of tools. Once again, I'd, I'd go back and say, either build your own ecosystem or engage with a partner who's already got an ecosystem who can help you, because it is a bit of a minefield getting some of those selections made quite early on. This may be why I'm, I'm slightly cynical about AI as yet in science, because we have so much variety of data. I would love, and I said this when I was at the Crick, I would love to have a minority report view of the data where you can take the genomic data, the microscopy data, the structured data, and pull it all together and get something meaningful by crossing those data sets. And it's incredibly difficult to do at the moment. So where you've got very different types of data, particularly where you're into imaging data and structured data, that's still quite difficult to, to get the information from. The Holy Grail would be to get that minority report worldview. Yeah, that, that's not a, not a challenge only faced by the scientific community. Lots of organisations have their data hidden away in data silos. So getting that data out 
into a suitable format that can be consumed by AI um, is also a big challenge that's facing organisations. All right, finally then, to wrap up, uh, your top three pieces of advice that you would give to CIOs to help them use AI uh, more effectively? So I think the, the first one I would say is there's a great phrase. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go farther, go together. Make sure that you engage with your ecosystem, you know who you want to work with, get a trusted partner and start to execute against your AI journey. I think would be the first one. Secondly, AI, it's available. It's being used today. It is something that you need to bring into your capability as an organisation in order to make sure that you are being competitive in today's market. And I think the last point I would make would be get started. Get started with some AI projects and start to think about some simple use cases you could execute against. There's quite a lot of research that says if you start on the AI journey, because AI is definitely a journey, not a destination, ahead of your competitors, they will never close the gap. You will always have a time-based differentiator given to you by artificial intelligence. So I would say, as I said earlier, I think start small. Start with something that is tangible, that you can show a return on to the organisation quickly. I think start with a real business problem or organisational problem and make sure that you've got a team from across the organisation. Matt was talking about working with partners. I think it's very, very important that this is not seen as the IT department's enthusiasm for wanting to play with bright and shiny stuff that you have a team across the organisation who buy into the fact that this is the right solution for your particular problem. And I suppose then the third, I'm, I'm going to be contrarian and say, don't get started. Unless you have those things, do not start. Don't jump in because AI looks sexy and new and you want to do it. Make sure you've got your ducks in a row and you're properly lined up before you start because once you've tried one of these things and failed, the organisation will not be forgiving and the next time you bring it up, They'll go, yeah, done that, didn't work, not doing it again. So don't start unless you've got a good basis. You know, I'm going to have to ask you, Matt, to respond to that. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's uh, <laughs> definitely good advice. Um, before you start any project, you do need to do some things. So make sure that you've got those lined up before you jump in. There is a counter to that, which is there is some education. I get lots of customers who say, innovate me. There's a big difference between innovate me and educate me. Mm. So engage with organisations who can help you understand where AI can play a role and also how to get effectively started. Because there are some things, as Alison talked about, that you definitely need to get lined up before, before you spend your money. Fundamentally, before you start executing against some of these things, you need to have the right kind of capability and business problem that you're trying to address. I think that's true. And I would say, I suppose the last point I talked about neurodiversity earlier, mm. uh, I would say whether or not AIs can be neurodiverse, make sure you're bringing neurodiversity into the team that are implementing them. Fantastic. Thank you to my guests, Alison Davis and Matt Armstrong-Barnes. In the fifth and final episode of The Pace Setters, we'll be joined by Jack Gold, who's president of J. Gold Associates in Boston, and Aid McCormack, who's a futurist and digital leadership specialist. I'll be asking them to do a bit of crystal ball gazing and identify the major trends that CIOs need to think about to get ahead of the pack and reflecting on the top tips from our experts across the series. 